morning, church. I had two odd things happening to me today. Do you remember ever being in high school or college and you had one of those dreams where like you showed up and you didn't remember there was a test that day or you showed up and you were inappropriately dressed and it was a dream? Preachers have those dreams as well. So I had a dream last night. My son shared with me that he had these vivid dreams. I think that's what triggered it. But I woke up this morning probably about 4.30 Um, The dream, I was down in my family room having a cup of coffee. I had gotten up late, and it was like 9 o'clock, and I said to myself, ah, no problem, I'll just go to the second service. And then it dawned on me that I was preaching today, and I literally, I shot out of bed, and I I was horrified. But here I am. The second odd thing is, I, I got a cool pen this morning. I was standing outside greeting people at the second service, and somebody handed me this cool pen with this little light on it, so... And the person said to me, this pen is from an attorney's office. I think you should give them a call. I said, were you at the first service? Why do you think I should give the attorney a call? So this person is sweet, and I think they meant because I could fellowship. I'm I'm, I'm sure she doesn't mean I need legal advice, but I thank you. I thank you for the pen. All right. That's the humor portion for today. So we're in John chapter 12 this morning. That's true in so many ways, isn't it, though? My, my light be shining in the darkness. I'll set this here so I don't set that off. So John chapter 12. When we started the, the story of Jesus in the book of John, where John wants to declare for us that Jesus is the Son of God, he's the Messiah, I shared with you the fact that John is dripping with symbolism, that the Gospel of John is different from the three synoptic Gospels, It is what many consider the spiritual or theological gospel. 90% of the material in John is not found in Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the synoptic gospels. A lot of it's new material. When we started back in chapter 1, we quickly went to chapter 2 where we came to the first public miracle that Jesus performed. Anybody remember what that was? He turned water into wine at the wedding at Cana. And I relayed to you that that was extreme symbolism in the fact that Jesus was starting his public ministry by saying, this is the blood, the wine is now blood of my new covenant. The old wine was insufficient for the wedding feast. The new wine was more than sufficient for the wedding feast. And Jesus made the new wine in purification vats, symbolizing that his blood was pure and good enough for forgiveness. And Jesus started his public ministry by saying, this is why I'm here. I'm here to shed my blood for you. I am here to create and to fulfill a new covenant with you, my people. A lot of times, though, when we go through the Gospels, or in this case, the book of John, we overlook things. But in John chapter 11, we see Jesus do his final public miracle. What was that? Thank you, Peggy. He raised Lazarus from the dead. So why do I bring that up? First public miracle, he declared himself to be the fulfiller of the gospel. I'm gonna shed my blood for you. At the end of his public ministry through miracles, what does he declare? I am the resurrection and the life. That's a beautiful picture there. Book ends and John does that on purpose. You can't have Jesus dying without the resurrection. You can't have the two are one. 
Paul himself said that we are foolish. If we don't believe in the resurrection, church, we are fools because if Jesus is dead, we are dead. If Jesus is dead and has not risen and defeated death, we remain in our sins. So take that. that that's an interesting thing from the, from the book of John. But there's another peculiar thing. John is full of symbolism. But John excludes something in his gospel that the other gospels include. At the Lord's table, at the Last Supper, in the Gospel of John, you never hear Jesus say, this is my body given for you. This is my blood given for you. This is my blood shed for your sins. John doesn't record the institution of communion in his gospel. He leaves it out. Now, John was written several decades after the other Gospels, so that may be why he says it was already said three times. But what John does then in the farewell chapters, that's what chapters 13 through 17 are called, in the farewell chapters, John gives massive discourses of what Jesus said during and right after this Lord's Supper. So make sure you delve into that and look at what he said. John excludes the symbolism of the Last Supper but he gives a whole bunch of discourses that are not recorded in the other Gospels. So make sure you dig into those and realize that this is the last week of Christ's ministry on earth. Prior to this time, he said the hour has not come for the Son of Man to be crucified, to die. Now he begins to say in chapter 12, it's time for me to die. It's time for me to give my life for you. And here's some instructions I have for you as I go. So as Stephen pointed out, we don't have the Lord's table in front of us this morning. We're going to celebrate that in two weeks, Good Friday. But what I'd like to do is spend a little time going over some principles that you would keep in our mind when we approach the Lord's table that I think we need to be reminded of sometimes from time to time. Now, as I said, John doesn't outright give the ordinance of the uh, communion service in his gospel. But in John chapter 12, my goal today is to pull out five principles from John chapter 12 that I want us to take with us, preparing ourselves for Good Friday communion. Sometimes, folks, communion can be looked at as just another service, just another thing we do. And I would rather we not do that. I'd rather give it the gravity and the seriousness that indeed it does deserve. So bottom line, we're going to go over five principles. So it's an it's a old form Baptist five-point serving this morning. So if you're an old Baptist, this should feel good to you. You should settle right in. Got five points. And for those of you who are just looking at your clock, you'll know I'm at three, I'm at four, I'm at five. All right? You got it. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for your death. And Lord, we thank you for your resurrection. Lord, we praise you that we are approaching Easter, the time when we come together and celebrate your victory over sin and death. But Lord, let's not walk past the death, the gravity of that. So be with us today as we look at your shed blood and the Lord's table. Amen. All right, so five principles that I want us to approach the Lord's table with. Now, the first one is this. At the Lord's table, we are all one. In John chapter 12, if you're there, it's interesting. At the end of John chapter 11, the religious leaders in John chapter 11 tell everyone, tell the people, hey, if you see Jesus 
walking around out there, reported to us because they wanted to kill him. They wanted to go arrest him and kill him. So they put the word out, if you see him, turn him in. John chapter 12, verse 1, instead of doing that, they decide to have a dinner party. My kind of people. They disobey the authorities. That's important. In John chapter 1, we see this dinner party here. Six days before the Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived, whom Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner party was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served with Lazarus, and Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. So the first thing we have to discover here is whose house was this dinner party held in? Now, during these days, it was culturally appropriate. If it was held in your house, you would be the one who served. So we see here that Martha is serving. Now, Martha is the brother, Martha is the sister of Lazarus. And thank you. I, 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 thank you for that chuckle. So, <laughs> so Martha is the sister of Lazarus and Mary. That's an, that's an important point. But she is serving. Lazarus is actually being honored with Jesus because they're honoring Jesus because he raised Lazarus from the dead. And what is Mary always doing? Mary is always worshiping Jesus. And we'll see that she continues to do that during this dinner. So this appears to be the house of Martha. Now, an interesting thing in Matthew chapter 26, verse 6 through 13, we are actually told whose house this is in. It is in the house of Simon the leper. So, we put two and two together. We put on our little gumshoe shoes and we asked ourselves, well, how is this? How can this be that Martha is serving and it's in the house of Simon the leper? Well, this is not gospel truth, but bear with me for a few minutes. I just want to go through a little bit of connecting the dots with you because it's what I enjoy doing. So, how did Jesus come to love Lazarus? The Bible tells us that Jesus loved Lazarus dearly. He loved the family. Well, where did he meet these fine folks? Jesus started his ministry in Galilee. And the Bible records for us that in Galilee, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus healed someone. He healed someone of leprosy. And he told that leper to go show yourself to the priest. But where is the priest? The priest is in Jerusalem. He said, go show yourself to the priest some 70 miles away from where Jesus healed the leper in Galilee. Why would Jesus tell this man to travel 70 miles and show himself to the priest? Well, maybe it's because the man lived in Bethany, two miles outside of Jerusalem. And Jesus knew that's where the man was headed back to. So this man traveled to Jesus, heard of his healing power. He said, Lord, I know if you're willing, you can heal me. Jesus heals him and says, go back to Jerusalem, go back to Bethany, show yourself to the priest. So perhaps that's how Jesus met this family. Now in Matthew 26, it says that this was in the house of Simon the leper. Folks, would you have a dinner party in a leper's house? No, you probably wouldn't. No, that was something we say is anathema to the Jewish people. Lepers are cast out. So we can pretty much assume that this was a healed leper, can't we? This man was a healed leper who could have people back in his home. So that's an interesting point to me. So was he Martha's husband or was he Martha, Mary, and Lazarus' father? We don't know. But we can speculate that's how, that's how Jesus got to know the family. So it was a somewhat wealthy family apparently because they had a house large enough to have a large dinner party because at this dinner party you had 
the family, you had Jesus, and you had his disciples all at this dinner party. So you had a large group of people at this party. They were wealthy because they had a large enough house. They also had a tomb where Lazarus was buried. Not everyone could afford a tomb. And we'll also find out that Mary had a large volume of very expensive perfume. So you have an upper middle class family at the least. You have a former leper. You have fishermen. You have tax collectors. You have all these people coming together at this table. You have all these people coming together and they're having a good time. Doesn't matter what their background is. Doesn't matter what their story is. James, the brother of Jesus, says this in chapter 2. My brothers and sisters, believers in our glorious Lord Jesus Christ, must not show favoritism. Suppose a man comes into your meeting wearing a gold ring and fine clothes, and a poor man in filthy old clothes also comes in. If you show special attention to the man wearing fine clothes and say, here's a good seat for you, but say to the poor man, you stand there or sit on the floor by my feet. Have you not discriminated among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? My first point for you was this. At the Lord's table, we are all one. We are all equal. Communion means, comes from the Greek word koinonia. It means fellowship. It means holding something in common. The reason we are all one church when we come to the table of the Lord is because all that other stuff falls away and we realize that we are sinners saved by grace and now we are all in fact saints. But it's not because we earned it. It's not because we were rich. It's not because we were poor. It's not because we were black. It's not because we were white. It's not because we had a big house. It's not because we had a small house. It's because at the table of the Lord, it's the great equalizer. So when you come to his table, let there be no judgment in your hearts. And I know you're probably saying, well, John, I don't, I don't hold blackness against somebody or whiteness against somebody or richness against somebody or poorness against somebody. But when you come to the table, church, do you hold some type of judgment against somebody that you shouldn't or that is unworthy for a child of God to hold against somebody? Are you tired of that person singing? Do you judge the way they dress? Do you judge how they speak? If you do, stop. At the table of the Lord, we don't bring judgment of that variety. We bring grace, we bring gratitude, we bring thanks, and we say, you are as good as me because we were in the same boat when he rescued us. That's the first principle, church. We hold something in common that's not riches. It's more than that. It's riches beyond materialism. It's riches untold. It's riches unfathomable. And it's riches that are based on the shed blood of Jesus Christ. Point two, the Lord's table demands a singular focus. In John chapter 12, verse 3, we read this. Mary then took a pound of very costly perfume of pure nard and anointed the feet of Jesus and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. Imagine that picture, church. Now, this isn't the woman who came to the house of Simon the Pharisee. This is a different story. Remember at the house of Simon and Pharisee, a woman came in behind Jesus and washed his feet with her tears and dried them with her hair? This is a different story. This is not that person. This is Mary, the sister of Lazarus and Martha. But imagine the scent of the anointed Christ in that room wafting through that room. 
Matthew tells us she also anointed his head, not only his feet. So you might say, wow, what an enjoyable evening this could have been. What an enjoyable evening. But Judas Iscariot, one of the disciples, disciples who was intending to betray him, said, why was this perfume not sold for 300 denarii and given to the poor? 300 denarii, that's a year's wages during this time. Why did Judas say this? He said this not because he was concerned about the poor, but because he was a thief. And as he had the money box, he used to pilfer what was put into it. Therefore, Jesus said, let her alone, leave her alone, Judas, so that she may keep it for the day of my burial. For you always have the poor with you, but you do not always have me. Jesus said, your motives are impure, brother. I know you just want the money so that you can enrich yourself. But if you want true enrichment, Judas, you should be at my feet. You should be worshiping me. You should be looking at what's around you. Smell the, smell the air, smell the perfume. This is the, this is the, the death that is going to save your life if you put your faith into it. But, but Judas was more focused on worldly things, on riches, on gain. But should we neglect the poor? Church, wouldn't, have, wouldn't it have been wise to sell that for 300 denarii, a year's wages, and instead of wasting it on Jesus, wouldn't it have been wise to spend that on the poor? For practical people in the audience, we would say yes. Yes. Why should he have his head anointed and his feet anointed? Well, Jesus said, the poor will always be with you. What was his point, church? What was his point? Without me, nothing else is important. Without me at its core, without me being the singular focus of your life, of your ministry, of your marriage, of your outreach, without me at the core of that, it is useless. You will always have the poor with you. You will always have the opportunity to reach out to the poor, but cling to me and spend time with me. That's the most important thing. And you can then not only bring the poor food, but you can bring them spiritual food. You can bring them the gospel, you can bring them life. But stop. If you're in a ministry and you're burdened and you're torn down, if you're in a marriage and you're burdened and feel torn down, if you're in a work situation where you're burdened and torn down, come to Christ and realize that those things will always be with you. Come to his feet and let everything fall away. Church, we've removed Christ from the center of our lives. He is now an adornment. He's an attachment. He's an add-on. He's a Sunday morning thing. He wants to be at the center. Whether you're doing evil or you're doing good, whether you're a Judas or you're a feeder of the poor, him first, him first. So when we come to the table, realize, that it's all about his death, his sacrifice. It's all about that, and that drives us to do everything else that we do. Oh, sorry. Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and in so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many of you are weak, sick, 
and in fact of falling asleep, which means died. Judge the body rightly. What is he talking about? When you come to the table of the Lord, you judge the significance of his sacrifice rightly, correctly. It's not a secondary act. It's not an ancillary act. It's not something that you come to lightly. When you come to take communion, when you come to the table of the Lord, when you wake up in the morning, you judge the body rightly. That means the sacrifice that was given for you was enormous. And you treat it as such. That's how you live your life. When we come to the table, everything falls away. And we look at the sacrifice and what was shed for us. And we say, nothing else is more important than this. That fight I had this morning with my spouse, it's not as important as the body I need to forgive. It's not as important as the sacrifice that was made for me. Point three, a celebration of the fruit of his life and death is what we have at the table. You ever been to a funeral where you said that was a good funeral? And I don't mean to say that sarcastically. Where you say they celebrated that life. Peggy, I think of Chan. Man, when you looked at what, what Channing Green did, and you look at that funeral and all his accomplishments and deeds, you say to yourself, that was a life well lived. It's a celebration. When we come to the table, we do indeed celebrate the life of Christ. But we also celebrate the benefits of the death, don't we? If the life hadn't been sinful, there would be no benefits of the death, but the life was sinful, so there's benefits of the death. What are those benefits? There are numerous benefits, but in John chapter 12, verse 20, it says this, now there were some Greeks among those who were going up to worship at the feast. These then came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida of Galilee, and began to ask him, saying, sir, we wish to see Jesus. Philip came and told Andrew, and Andrew and Philip came and told Jesus. So Jesus doesn't respond by saying, sure, show them in, guys. Uh, this is the week of my death, but I have a few minutes. Bring them on in. He doesn't say that. Jesus answered them, saying, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified, to be killed, to be executed, to be crucified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. So when we come to the table of the Lord, we realize that there's a death that we mourn, but there's such blessings from the fruit of that death. What's he saying here, church? When Jesus came, he came to his people, the Jews. They crucified him. These Greeks came to him, wanting to speak to him about what he's up to. Is he the Messiah? What have we been hearing about you? He says, no, not yet. He says, when I am crucified, when I am glorified, I will be lifted up and I will draw all men to myself. When I am dead and buried and resurrected, that seed that's planted in the tomb will burst forth and there will be fruit untold based upon my victory and my death. A grain of wheat has to fall to the earth and die for fruit to be born. Church, this means that Jesus died so that we could reach the Gentiles. Who are the Gentiles, church? Look around. You're the fruit that he speaks of here. You're the fruit that he speaks of, that he had to die for, that he had to be planted for, and that he had to be resurrected for. But the fruit doesn't stop there, church. You were given a great commission. You remember that? You are to bear more fruit. 
You are to look at that seed that was planted and say, I'm a tree of that seed. And I need to boldly draw all men to Christ through the proclaiming of the gospel. When we come to the table, that's what he says we need to do. We need to see the seed that was planted in us, the word of God. We proclaim the death of Christ, the sacrifice. John says, well, I won't read that all, but Jesus said something that we always find interesting. I have to go to the Father in order to send the helper, the Holy Spirit. If I don't go to the Father, the helper won't come. Church, do you realize that this is an incredible fruit that Jesus Christ's death has borne in you? The Holy Spirit dwelling in you? In the Old Testament, did the Holy Spirit dwell in the Old Testament saints? Off and on. The Spirit would descend, the Spirit would go. In New Testament saints, those who you see sitting here about, around you, does the Holy Spirit come and go? No. The Holy Spirit dwells in you forever as a seal for those who are in Christ. A seal saying you are in Christ and you cannot be taken out of Christ. Jesus' death secured that from you. When he went and showed, showed the Father that he had paid for your sin, he washed you clean. And instead of there being an external temple church, you are the temple. And the Holy Spirit comes to dwell in you forever and to give you power and boldness. Church, you got to take hold of some of that power and boldness. I ain't seeing a lot of it out in the world. Take hold of it. You are the fruit of his death. Go forth and produce other fruit. Jesus said, greater things will you do than he did. He has given you the power to bring the gospel to not only the Jews, but the Greeks, to the world. Point four. For those of you counting, there's five points. Point four, at its heart is sacrifice. At the heart of the table, at the heart of the gospel is sacrifice. He who lives his life loses it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it to life eternal. If anyone serves me, he must follow me, and where I am, there my servant will be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Church, when you come to the table... You know what you're saying? You're saying, I'm giving up my life. I'm giving up my needs, my wants, and desires that do not align with you, my Lord. When you come to the table, there's gravity, church. I asked my sons, we went out to dinner the other day, and I asked my sons, hey, do you ever, when you take communion, do you ever reach for the larger cracker because you're hungry? Do you ever do the double dip on the cup because you think there's a little bit more in there that might be tasty? And one of my sons said yes, and this one boldly said, I've never done that, Dad, so that's good, Josh. But my, my younger son said, yeah, I've done that, Dad. It's not that we're proud of it, but the point is sometimes we come to the table and our heart isn't where it should be. It's not about, oh, am I going to spill the cup for the next person? It's not about taking the smaller cracker because you want to be humble. It's focusing on Jesus, not those around you. And I don't mean selfishly. Of course, you're focusing on those around you when you focus on Jesus, but you've got to be willing to sacrifice your life. Jesus, John chapter 6 said this. Jesus said to them, very truly I tell you, unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise them up on the last day. 
For my flesh is real food and my blood is real drink. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in them. Just as the living Father sent me and I have I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. That is harsh language, folks. You know what happened right after Jesus said that? Not the 12, but his disciples left him. Those beyond the 12 said, this is too much. We can't, we can't tolerate this. What do you mean you got to eat, eat your flesh and drink your blood? What are we, vampires here? This is unheard of. This is ridiculous. We got to walk away from this guy. He's lost it. But the disciples stayed. And now we understand what Jesus meant by that. Again, back to the word koinonia, communion. If you want to partake of me, you have to consume me. This is no nibbling around the edges. These are no hors d'oeuvres. This is no sampling this or that. You want to serve me? You want to worship me? You want to come to my table rightly? You consume me. You eat me. You make me part of you. You join me in my mission. Now, this is not transubstantiation. It doesn't turn into the body and blood of Christ when it enters our body, but we are to consume him and consider him symbolically someone we are digesting and digesting and giving back the very sacrificial nature that he has imparted to us. Before we go on to five, church, everything about Christianity hinges on sacrifice. That's why we look at the cross as the pinnacle of history. Everything in your life, church, hinges on sacrifice. Everything that you want to do well will hinge on sacrifice. You want to have a good marriage, church. When two people come together and they say, in Christ we will sacrifice, you will have a solid marriage. If you have one person pedaling and the other one sitting on the back seat not pedaling, you're going to have a tough marriage if only one sacrifices. You want to have a ministry. It's all about sacrifice. If you want to have a ministry and all you want are pats on the back, good luck, church. You might get a few kicks in the hiney, but you're going to get very few pats on the back. So if you want to have ministry, you've got to be ready to sacrifice. You want to love kids and you want to raise them, you've got to be ready to sacrifice. Sacrifice is love. Sacrifice is love, giving up your needs for another's needs. When you come to the table, you recognize that he gave up his wants and desires for ours because he loved us. At the table of the Lord, we glorify God. Verse 27, now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour. But for this purpose, I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came out of heaven. I have both glorified it and will glorify it again through your crucifixion, son. Verse 27. Jesus was not, he was human. He was sinless, but he had emotions. Jesus knows what he's facing. And I love the fact that John honestly records here that Jesus said, now my soul has become troubled. He was facing death and he became troubled. I, I, I told the story earlier of a woman I work with and she lost her husband recently. And you know, at, at a job, what, you get two weeks to recover from that and then you're expected to be back on the job. 
you can't recover from losing a spouse in two weeks, but that's the way things roll. So she came in, and I saw her one day, and I saw her in the hall, and I walked up to her, and I saw that she was not ready to be back at work. And I said, what's wrong? And she said, a wave just came over me, and I miss my husband so much, I can't function. A wave. You can't stop it. It just comes over you. Jesus had those waves. Now my soul has become troubled. What shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No. That's why I came. I came to glorify my Father. I came to glorify God. And I will do it with my life. So when we come to the table, church, we agree that he glorified God. We take part in his death. We consume him. We agree that we will glorify God. How do we do that, church? Exodus 33, 17, the Lord said to Moses, I will, I will do this thing which you have spoken, Moses, for you have found favor in my sight, and I have known you by name. Then Moses said, I pray you, Lord, show me your glory. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. Pastor Rossetti instituted Glory Tuesday last week, week before where we were supposed to glorify God. What does that mean to glorify God? Well, from this verse, I think it means two things. It means that we will proclaim the name of the Lord. We will proclaim all his goodness. We will boldly say that the Lord is God. And salvation alone is through God, Jesus Christ, our Savior. But church, glory is something else. It's not only proclaiming his goodness, but it's living out his goodness. Living out his goodness. And that's what Pastor Rossetti was telling us to do, was to proclaim his goodness and to live out his goodness. So when we come to the table, church, and we want to glorify God, we have to live out the goodness of God. If we proclaim the goodness of God and we don't live it out, we should not come to the table. The table is not the place for you to come and confess your sins, though it's okay if you do that. The Bible says, and we just read it, to examine your heart before you come to the table. Before you come to the table, church, and we're going to do it in two weeks, I have a challenge for you this morning. Before you come to the table in two weeks, or the next time you're able to do it, examine yourself. Are you living sacrificially? Are you glorifying God with mouth only or are you glorifying him with your goodness? What is my goodness, John? Are you forgiving those who need forgiving? Are you judging those who shouldn't be judged? Are you loving those who need to be loved or are you so wrapped up in your own life that you have no time to partake of his body and to drink his blood? I said this earlier and I want to make this distinction. Forgiveness doesn't mean that you always have a relationship restored with somebody. Do we understand that, church? When Jesus was on the cross and he forgave those Roman soldiers at the foot of his cross, he was not resurrected and had a party with them. He just said, Father, forgive them for they know not what they do. If you're abused as a child, I do not expect you to have a relationship with an unrepentant father. Forgiveness doesn't always mean restoration of relationship, but unforgiveness, you know, I know, destroys the soul because it's not what God wants. God wants us to come to the table, glorify him, and say, I will forgive those who hurt me because you have forgiven me who hurt you, Lord. 
I come to the table as an equal with those around me. I come to the table as the sinner of sinners, but now as a saint. I don't come to the table as an unforgiven sinner. I come as a forgiven saint. What's the difference, church? I'm not wallowing in my sin. I'm not wallowing in envy. I'm not wallowing in pride. I'm not wallowing in the unfruits of the Spirit. I now wallow in the fruits of the fruits of the Spirit, the Spirit that dwells in me, that now takes up its home in me. And I'm a fountain of forgiveness. I'm a fountain of love. I'm a fountain of sacrifice. Because each and every day, not only at the Lord's table, I wake up and say, Lord, today I'm consuming you. I'm communing with you. I'm fellowshipping with you. And I'm living for you. So church, Prepare your hearts for communion. Make it a special communion. Make it a communion where you come and give it the gravity it deserves. Make it a communion where you come and everything else has fallen away and you consider the body that was broken for you. And also consider the Father. We often think of the pain of the Son. Imagine the pain of the Father. Did waves of sadness sweep over the father as he executed his son. Consider that body. It wasn't just his body. It was a body the father loved as well. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your goodness. We thank you for the reminder of what you've done for us through your son, Jesus Christ, through his shed blood. And Lord, we praise and thank you that he is not still in the grave, that he has been resurrected, and that he has conquered sin and death. And he has passed that life on to us who call him Savior and call him Lord. Father, be with us this season. Let us acknowledge the resurrection, but not bypass the death. The two go together. Be with us, Lord. Help us examine our hearts. And in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.